Welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today is Friday, February 9th, 2024, and I am your host, Matt Norton. I am here once again with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, what is going on? Matty, not too much. Everything is looking great. And we got Valentine's Day coming up. So I hope everyone who's got a special someone has already thought out what you're going to get them and all that jazz. And if you don't have someone, who cares? It doesn't matter. Yeah, if you have someone, I hope you're doing something nice. If you don't have someone, it's a corporate holiday that is fake. and uh, it, it is so fake. <laughs> I have someone, and I think it's completely fake and fraudulent. Yeah. And I don't think people should celebrate it. Yeah, usually what Kaylee and I do is just like make a dinner that is mildly more expensive than our normal dinners, <laughs> but like way less than going out to dinner. Yes, 100%. Like we'll get like a, a nice cut of fish and be like, oh my God, this is so good. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, this would be $50 at a restaurant. <laughs> and for the two of us, it's like 20 bucks for a dinner instead of our usual like five or whatever groceries come out to per meal. Yeah, exactly. And then also you're, you're forgetting like if you get a drink or if you get two, you know, the person who's not driving gets two drinks, the other person gets one or whatever. You both get two. Yeah. It adds up fast. It adds up very quick. Not when you stay in, do nothing. And, uh, you know, our, our special thing this year is I, I got us a loaf of chocolate bread from a bakery near me that I'm picking up on Wednesday. Nice. That sounds great. Should be good. Seven bucks. Deal. <laughs> Big spender. Absolute deal. <laughs> that's, uh, you, go. you know, that's what people are coming here for is our, our Valentine's Day discussion. So that's going to end today's podcast. No, I'm kidding. We'll get into the real show right now. for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Seth Borenstein of the Associated Press, who writes, dial it up to category six. As warming stoke storms, some want a bigger hurricane category. So climate change is making tropical storms more prevalent and more powerful due to the increases in ocean temperature. Basically, hotter water is going to have a better environment um, to, to produce these storms and produce more of them and make them stronger. The scale that ranks hurricanes from Category 1 through Category 5 was developed over 50 years ago, and some scientists are now saying that that Saffir-Simpson scale might not show just how powerful storms are today and how powerful storms will be in the future. Any tropical storm with wind speeds of at least 157 miles per hour are considered Category 5. But the authors of a study published this Monday in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science are proposing that storms with speeds over 192 miles per hour may be Category 6. Other scientists have disagreed with this idea because it may cause the public to think the danger from a hurricane is related to wind speed. In reality, the most dangerous part of a hurricane is the storm surge, which is the water that floods a region after a hurricane hits land. Since 2013, five Pacific tropical storms have had wind speeds over 192 miles per hour, but the authors warn that this could start happening in the Gulf of Mexico and other places as the climate continues to warm. Michael Wenner, one of the authors of the study, said there are roughly 10 days each year where the environment could be right for Category 6, 
but that could go up to a month if the globe were to heat to three degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And for all of us imperial folk out there, myself included, that is 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Nick, do we need a sixth category for tropical storms? You know, I love the question. I think the answer is not yet, Um, but I think we will within the next five to 10 years. I think it's just like a matter of time. The only thing I'm a little cautious about, or I have some hesitation towards is people seeing, oh, category two and now thinking, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Yeah. No no worries. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, I'm just going to, you know, I'll do my normal thing. I'm fine. It's only category two. It's not a six, you know? So that that would be my one concern. Yeah. I I think your concern there is exactly why I think we don't really need one. Like, I think it's just semantics at this point. Yeah. Like the dissenters from the study kind of point out, wind speeds are obviously dangerous, right? Those are the things that are going to impact your roof getting torn off in, in a hurricane. Those are the things that are going to lift your car off the ground, for example, Yeah, or take a tree and uproot it and send it into your house. Like there are bad things that happen from wind speed alone, but a lot of the issues that we run into, it's the storm surge, like you said. Yeah. And I, I think that it's a really fair call out to say, yeah, it's worse when a hurricane is X amount of miles per hour over the category five threshold compared to like one mile per hour over the, the category five threshold. Yeah. But at the end of the day, once you get up to that, you know, that range, it doesn't really matter, right? Like it's just bad and nothing good is going to come out of it and you're going to have to prepare for it regardless. So I think that maintaining the same scale, it doesn't desensitize us to the category twos, like you're saying, or the category ones, which are still like, you need to prepare for that. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I will continue living my life the way I'm living my life. And if there's a sixth category to analyze hurricanes with, great. I will, I will use that when I'm talking about hurricanes. And if there isn't, you know, people still need to prepare for category fives the way that they normally prepare for category fives, which is typically evacuate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing changes there. All right. Our next story is from the Independence Stuti Mishra, who writes, at least 112 dead as Chile's deadliest ever forest fire rages on. Forest fires in Chile have killed at least 112 people with entire neighborhoods being destroyed. This is the worst forest fire event in Chilean history, and the fires have scorched 110,000 acres as of Monday night as firefighters have struggled to control the flames. Chilean government has declared a state of emergency. Authorities have urged thousands to evacuate their homes and curfews have been imposed on cities near the fires so that emergency vehicles have easier routes for firefighting and for rescue. There are currently 161 active fires, which experts say are a symptom of climate change causing record high temperatures during an El Nino year that has brought drier conditions and forest fires throughout Latin America. At the time of recording, there are still hundreds of people missing. Um, really not much to add here. It's just one of those stories that unfortunately is becoming more common because of climate change, because as as temperatures increase and as conditions get drier and droughts become more prevalent, a lot of trees that would normally experience rainfall, saturation, they are now effectively becoming tender and they are able to light up and, and make these fires extremely difficult to control for woodland firefighters. So you know, our, our thoughts go out to all those impacted. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing to add there. You, you said it best. All right. With that, we will move on to this week's environmental policy roundup. 
little bit of a longer one this week because uh, we have some some bigger news. So John Podesta is set to replace John Kerry, who will be stepping down as U.S. climate envoy in the spring to focus on Joe Biden's reelection campaign. Podesta has been largely in charge of the Inflation Reduction Act, which created billions of dollars for environmental causes, including related to renewable energy and electric vehicles. Podesta's appointment has been mostly supported by environmental groups after a 50-plus year career in public service, including serving as President Obama's climate advisor. Podesta will remain in his role focusing on clean energy rollout at home while adopting this new role of U.S. climate envoy. The National Trust has announced another plan to restore a lost rainforest in the United Kingdom, where North Devon will see 100,000 trees planted to create a temperate rainforest. Temperate rainforests are humid, woody areas that once spanned across the western coast of Great Britain, but are now an endangered habitat in the UK. The article calls out air pollution, invasive species, diseases, deforestation, and climate change as some of the main threats that temperate rainforests have faced. In Kenya, the federal government wants to build a 32-mile tarmac road to connect two counties, which would cut through roughly 15 miles of closed canopy forest. For this reason, the National Environmental Management Authority is requiring an environmental impact assessment over how this road would disturb an area that has been suggested as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The proposed road would cut a 3.5-hour drive to 1.5 hours between Nyeri and Nduya Njero, which residents say could improve their lives through increased access to food and trade. Conservationists counter this by saying that this would cause irreparable damage to the local ecosystem. Nick, I want to brag and ask a quick question, and then I want to get into a different one of these. Um, I've been to UNESCO World Heritage Site when I was in uh, Austria, and it was gorgeous. It was incredible. <laughs> Man, Like I just have such a deep appreciation for for these World Heritage Sites now, because I'd never been to one. Like I've been to a, a lot of beautiful places in, in the U.S. I've been to a bunch of national parks, but... Yeah. Man, to have something that's recognized on the global stage as just... This is important because of the intrinsic value of it and because it's worth protecting. And that's really the end of it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like breathtaking. Have you ever been to one of those? No, I have not. I have not been to a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I don't even know what would be qualified on that list for a for a World Heritage Site. Let me see the, the nearest one. Oh, us. OK. So I just lied. I was wrong. Um, I have been to a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yosemite. Oh, I didn't know that that qualified. I also didn't. Okay, then I've been to I've been to more than one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. That one that one qualifies. Um, so there you go. And you also have been to Yellowstone, which also qualifies. Yeah. So okay. Just, so maybe I've been to. All right. Well, maybe uh, maybe that's why we we don't fact check us live on air because everyone's like, oh, that was sick, and now I'm just I'm just a big dumb idiot. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, let's get to the the more talking part of this. That I want to get into. John Podesta, I will tell you how I feel about this. I want your thoughts on it. Um, I'm going to call myself out as being a bit of a hypocrite here. I, I I am okay with this. I think John Podesta, his qualifications kind of speak for himself, and I think this is a, a really smart appointment. Um, he's around the same age as John Kerry. And my first thought was, man, do we really need another 80-year-old that is basically the head of the table for the U.S. in in climate negotiations? Like, I want... I want new blood in there. I want somebody young. I want somebody with fresh ideas. And then I was like, hold on, how old is John Kerry? And I realized they're around the same age. So yeah. my my first thought was maybe like maybe a little harsh because I John Kerry is older than I thought. Um, I, I just kind of 
assumed he was early 70s. He's like 78 or something. So I, uh, like age aside, I think that John Podesta is a really smart pick and I could see why a lot of environmental groups are are happy with the pick. Um, I just hope that with the role of Climate Envoy, he is surrounding himself with young environmental activists that can bring some fresh ideas in and, you know, maybe serving as more of um, an advisory role. Somebody brings a really good idea to the table. It's like, all right, well, I have 50 years of experience in government. Here's how we get your idea right. moving forward, as opposed to, well, I have 50 years in government. I know how this works, not you. And that's that's kind of my main concern. But I, I think overall, it sounds like a smart pick. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. It's a, it's a two-way street because while, you know, having someone who's old in office isn't great in terms of, you know, the ideas that they're bringing and all that stuff, they've been jaded maybe by, you know, our system. But in that same breath, they know how to work the system and they're like, they're more experienced. So that, that part, their experience is great. And then with the young people, they have fresh ideas. They understand that they're going to have to be here in 40, 50 years when, you know, S word starts to hit the fan. So it's a, it's a balance, I think of having both. And I will never say no to, you know, making politics or having politicians be younger. I think that's just a, a net positive in general. Yeah. We don't need any more, you know, 70, 80 year old people um, coming into office. I think we pretty much are all set with that. We know how that works. Yeah. And I, I think I, I agree with you. I, I think that to serve as an advisory role, kind of like I said, is, is key because that experience that John Podesta in this case is going to bring to that role, that's invaluable, right? 50 years of doing this and, and many, many years, I think like over two decades, the article I was reading said of working in the climate space, that's good. Right. And like, we need that, but we also need young people with new, fresher ideas that, you know, maybe we're less tied into the existing system. Like maybe we don't have as many friends in high places as, a John Podesta might where you don't want to step on certain people's toes yeah. or maybe I'm wrong on all of this and maybe he's not afraid to step on toes and is going to do what is absolutely best for the climate moving forward. So we'll see. I'm kind of just thinking out loud here and uh, you know, like I said, on paper seems like a good pick and let's, let's hope for the best here. As always, all three of those articles are in your show notes. If you want to read from more detail, Nick and I are going to take a very quick break and come back with two more for you. So stick around, stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co slash TPT for 15% off. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co slash TPT.
Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, the world's biggest jeweler now only sources recycled metals by Elizabeth Patton of the New York Times. Danish jewelry company Pandora has announced that it is now only using 100% recycled silver and gold for its products in an effort to reduce the company's environmental impact. Mining is a major energy and resource consumer, whereas recycling uses only metals that have already been previously mined. Pandora cited the World Gold Council in stating recycling gold creates 99% less emissions than mining it, compared to 66% for silver. The article rightfully calls recycled out as a bit of a buzzword right now and compares it to sustainability in that it's a vague term that if used incorrectly, can kind of greenwash products a little bit. So there isn't really a clear answer right now as to where these metals are sourced other than they are recycled. Tiffany Stevens of the Jewelers Vigilance Committee and other groups have asked the Federal Trade Commission to disallow the use of recycled for jewelry sold in the U.S. And they're doing this because most metals have been melted and reused for centuries, and they retain their value in doing that. I mean, we've, we've all walked past on a strip mall, though. We buy gold. What they're doing is buying your old jewelry, melting it down, and reusing it. So recycled metals isn't a new concept. The FTC's current guidelines state that recycled materials are materials that have been recovered or diverted from the waste stream, meaning repurposing stuff that would normally end up in a landfill, which, like we just mentioned, gold and silver do not often end up in landfills because of that ability to melt them down and repurpose them. While Pandora and other jewelers are moving to use more recycled materials, overall mining for gold and silver is still abundant over the last decade. So, Nick, what are your thoughts? Is this good? Is this just a PR move or is this somewhere in the middle? I think it's somewhere in the middle, but I'm more leaning on the side of like PR move. I'm thinking about like the people that say like, oh, our vodka is gluten free. <laughs> like, yeah, all vodka is gluten free. Do you know that? Like it's it's like putting a label on something that doesn't need a label. Yeah. Kind of thing in order to just generate more revenue um, because of like, you're, you're basically hoping that the consumer doesn't know enough about your process and it, and just trying to put one over on them. That's that's what I don't like about this. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of with you in there. I, I do think it's somewhere in the middle. My thing is like, this is a good thing, right? This does reduce the need for for new mined gold and new mined silver. And this is going to reduce Pandora's environmental impact and it's going to reduce their emissions that come from the mining process. Yeah. But is it something to call out specifically? And here's, here's where I think it gets really dicey. There are people who will spend more money to be more environmentally conscious. I consider myself one of those people. Mm -hmm. So if it's, you know, a $100 pair of earrings versus a $150, but you know, the $150 is more environmentally conscious and maybe the, it, maybe it's a pair of diamond earrings and the diamond is lab grown. So you know that there's no like ethical dilemma behind those diamonds. Mm -hmm. I would spend more on that than on, on a traditional pair of earrings, we'll say. In this case, I hope Pandora isn't just using recycled as this buzzword and saying, we're going to charge people more because we know we can and we know that people will love that. Yep. Offer a, a system that we would normally be doing. If gold and silver are normally melted down and reused, this isn't a new thing. And I hope they're not just, you know, like you said, taking advantage of people who who might not know any differently. Yeah. I, I like go out of my way to not buy those products when I recognize it or when I have enough information about like a certain product or something like that. 
Um, I go out of my way to not get them besides Tito's. <laughs> it's just, it's just kind of unfair to basically pawn this off on the consumer. So my overall takeaway is this is a good thing. And I'm glad that they are moving to hundred percent recycled materials. Yeah. But it seems like a lot of their materials were probably recycled anyway. And this isn't exactly the same as, you know, some companies will take plastic water bottles out of the ocean and turn it into shoelaces. That's good. That's awesome. That's, you know, really having this tremendous environmental impact. Not to say that this doesn't, it's just, that is a recycled product. Right. That's taking something out of nothing. Yeah. Gold and silver, we might not have this issue really. So it's, it's, you know, putting a cap on this, it's a good thing, but I hope it is more than just a buzzword because that's when it stops being as much of a good thing. Yeah, absolutely agreed. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is another one from the New York Times where Kara Buckley writes, could a giant parasol in outer space help solve the climate crisis? All right. Fun one to close things out today. You know, those sun umbrellas that protect you from UV radiation from the sun and from the heat. Well, Imagine a giant one in outer space that is meant to protect the planet as a whole. Buckley writes of scientists with an idea to create a sunshade situated between the Earth and the sun, which blocks some solar radiation countering global warming. If it blocked just 2% of the sun's rays, it would be enough to cool the planet by 1.5 degrees Celsius and keep the Earth at a livable temperature. Professor Yoram Rosen of the Asher Space Research Institute at Technion Israel Institute of Technology says a team of scientists is ready to build a prototype shade to test this hypothesis. The shade would roughly have to be 1 million square miles to block 2% of the sun's UV radiation, which would weigh at least 2.5 million tons. This means that smaller shades would have to be launched into space in series. They would not completely block out sunlight. They would just diffuse some of the sunlight. Like all climate measures we discuss on the show, this would not eliminate the need to shift to a fossil fuel-free economy. We also need to remove some of the carbon trapped in the atmosphere due to how long-lasting the impacts of fossil fuel burning are. There are critics of the idea who think that the sunshade would be far too expensive or would not be built fast enough to implement in time to mitigate climate change. Another concern is that if space rocks or a solar storm were to damage the sunshade, it could result in sudden rapid warming due to the shade reflecting more sunlight to Earth. Suzanne Bauer, a doctoral candidate focused on solar radiation modification modeling, says that time and money would be more effectively used on reducing greenhouse gas emissions and removing carbon from the atmosphere. So what do you think, Matt? I mean, like this would be cool if it worked. Like this is very science fiction-y to me awesome that there's a prototype ready to be built and I would be happy to be proven wrong on this, but I I don't know. I kind of tend to side with the the critics of the idea that scientists that are saying like, we need to invest time and money into things that we know will work. Like, yeah, this doesn't take away the need to have more solar energy, to have more wind power, to decrease our reliance on coal throughout the world, to decrease our reliance on natural gas throughout the world, to lower methane emissions in the next five years, to lower carbon dioxide over the next 30 years. Those are all things that regardless of what else we do, those need to be the priority. And this just seems like a way to say we could do the coolest thing possible (laughs) to reduce 
climate impact. Yeah. And this would be cool. Like anytime you're, you're getting involved with like space and things that are giant. <laughs> yeah. Like it's cool. It's tangible. Right. And yeah, this doesn't do it for me. Like this would be cool, but I just, I think that we have a, a better avenue to use our, our time, our money and our resources on. This is very gimmicky. And it's, it's honestly, it's like taking Ozempic when you're trying to lose weight instead of like actually starting to diet and exercise and like really like work hard to do it. It's, it's a very, it's like your short term, you know, impacts are going to be great. <laughs> and then like, it's, yeah. it's not going to end up actually working or like, you know, it'll just, I don't know, it'll end up like exploding in your face. So I, I just don't think it's something that um is feasible and, and likely 2.5 million tons too. How, how is that going to, how is that going to work? I don't understand how that would work. So disclaimer, um, if you are on Ozempic for its intended purposes, which I think is like type two diabetes, yes, diabetes. Maybe, keep taking it. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. If you're, one of those, if you're one of those people who's just taking it for weight loss, like, yeah, come on. But anyway, um, what I was going to say is I don't know how much a rocket weighs and I don't know how much a rocket can carry, but I'm curious how much emissions would be generated getting those 2.5 million tons worth of, of shade up to space. Yeah. And like, when does this become worth it? So I don't know. Again, cool story. Fun to think about. I hope you as a listener are like, I have an opinion on that. And if you do, you can always reach us on all social medias at planet today pod, where you should tune in for more TPT before our next episode on Friday, which is going to come in the form of an interview with Matthew Creighton of Publitics. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of TPT. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of our music that you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? I'm taking my time this week to say happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Enjoy the day and have a great week. And listen to Valentine's Day themed music at soundcloud.com slash Cape. That's B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone. And we'll catch you right here next Friday. Peace.